Hey friends, Nina here. If you're in the Albuquerque, New Mexico area, I hope you'll join us on Sunday, March 5th at 6 p.m. at Rio Bravo Brewing Company. We're doing a true crime live event. There's going to be a bunch of podcasts there. We're doing a live episode, Q&A, and then a meet and greet. Tickets are available on Eventbrite, and I really hope you'll join us. Again, that's Sunday, March 5th, 2023 at the Rio Bravo Brewing Company in Albuquerque. Hope to see you there. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already I think most listeners of the podcast know that I am passionate about cases involving children. And I understand that cases involving harm to children are not always an easy listen. But I believe that when a child is lost and the case is unresolved, we need to give that case our attention, even when it's uncomfortable. Today is another one of those cases where a family faces a terrible loss and now... More than 40 years later, they are still waiting for answers. So come with me to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where an 11-year-old boy vanished on Halloween night. (music) 11-year-old Carl Heichel was the only boy in a family of girls. He lived with his sisters and parents in the small community of Centennial Heights, Michigan. Centennial is near Calumet, a former UP boomtown. Calumet was known for copper mining in the late 1800s into the 20th century. The entire community is quite small. If you fold in nearby towns like Centennial Heights and Lorium Township, the population surges to about 2,000 people. The nearest big city is Marquette, Michigan, at two hours away. If you need a larger town, it's a four-hour drive to either Green Bay, Wisconsin, or Duluth, Minnesota. On the afternoon of Halloween, 1981, 11-year-old Carl told his sister that he was heading out to a, quote, drinking party. He told his father that he was heading out on a walk. This was about 4 p.m., and I checked the almanac sunset wouldn't happen for at least two and a half hours. Carl would not return from his outing, whether it was to a drinking party like he told his sister, or if he went out for a walk like he told his father. On November 1st, his parents reported him missing to law enforcement. Unfortunately, police decided, as they often did during this era, that he was a runaway. They told the family not to worry that Carl would turn up in a day or two at the family home. On November 1st, a man named Gary Olson tells police that he knows Carl and saw him walking toward the Langdon home in Centennial Heights on Halloween. This was between 4 and 4.30 p.m., and this lines up with what Carl's family said about Carl leaving the house around 4 or 4.30 that afternoon. On December 2nd, 1981, police log a black Casio wristwatch into evidence. The watch was found by a Centennial Heights local back on November 30th while he was walking County Road C-11A. The man noticed a watch face missing a wristband 
laying in the road on top of snow and on the left side of the roadway. Carl's father, Lawrence Heichel, confirmed that the watch belonged to Carl. Police also note that the watch was found just east of the Langdon property in Centennial Heights, about 25 yards east of where the creek crosses the road if you're driving US-41. I've mentioned the Langdon house twice now, and we will get to the Langdon family shortly. While we've found one of Carl's belongings in an odd place, we still don't have any idea of what's happened to Carl. It will take almost a full year until we have some answers in his disappearance, but it's not a satisfying conclusion. On October 2, 1982, Roger Perot, a local bird hunter, called law enforcement to report that while exploring a wooded area near Centennial Heights, he came across several articles of torn clothing. Roger, along with his father Clifford, took police to the scene. Upon arrival, officers observed one pair of blue jeans, remnants of a blue and green plaid shirt, white socks with red trim, white underwear, and a blue nylon jacket. Additional searches that afternoon produced tufts of human hair, several fingernails, and a section of bone. On October 5th, officers returned to the location and found what appeared to be a femur. It was discovered approximately 75 feet from the spot where the clothing was found. No further human remains linked to Carl have ever been recovered. Keep in mind that it's 1982. There is no DNA testing available to confirm that it's Carl. They are assuming that it's him based on bones, hair, and nails being found with his clothing. These remains were found approximately half a mile from the home Carl shared with his parents and sisters. And that's all they found of Carl. No skull, no rib cage, just a few bone fragments and bits of hair and nails. While the discovery brought some sort of conclusion to the case, it raised a lot of questions. What happened to Carl? When did he die? Was it by misadventure or foul play? Police didn't have enough remains to rule anything out. Which leads us to one of the known suspects in Carl's case. Alan Palawara. Alan grew up in Centennial Heights and remained in the area as an adult. In fact, he was employed by Carl's uncle at Mr. Radiator in Calumet at the time of Carl's disappearance. Alan knew Carl and likely knew the entire Heichel family. Alan was a quiet and reserved person who had few friends. He was also a drinker and known to be a bad drinker, becoming loud and obnoxious. Those familiar with him and his drinking habits reported that alcohol turned him into a different person. On Halloween night, 1981, Alan was with his friend, John, and they were unloading a truck in Calumet around 6 p.m. When they finished unloading the truck, John stopped in at Harder's Party Store on Pine Street where he saw and spoke with Carl Heichel. Police believe this sighting of Carl to be credible. Alan was drinking at a local watering hole just two doors down from the party store at the time John saw Carl. Years later, Judy, an ex-girlfriend of Alan's, would tell police about an incident where she and Alan were out picking apples. He told her on this outing that they were near the area where Carl's remains were discovered in 1982. 
In a November 10, 1984 police interview, Allen advised that he did know Carl and had spoken to him on several occasions. He claims that he never hung out with Carl, never took him anywhere in a vehicle, and never supplied Carl with alcohol or drugs. He advised that it was his own feeling that Carl's disappearance involved foul play. Also, during this November 10th interview, Allen admitted to sexually abusing and raping his own sons. He claims that his last contact with the boys was when the divorce was finalized, and since that time, he said there were no more incidents involving children. During the same interview, Allen stated that he had nothing to do with Carl's death, and police note that he was able to discuss the matter without being overly nervous. Allen agreed to and was administered a polygraph. While the results of the polygraph are omitted from the report, a retired Calumet Post Michigan State Police detective and former lead on the Heichel case confirmed that Allen passed the exam. And I know how people feel about polygraphs, but they held a lot of sway in the early 1980s. Palavara is still alive and he still resides in the Calumet area. Another person mentioned in relation to the case is Bill Langdon, a 16-year-old who was acquainted with Carl. We mentioned the Langdon house earlier in the episode. Police spoke with Bill Langdon on November 1, 1981. 16-year-old Bill told police he saw Carl the afternoon of Halloween and said Carl mentioned trick-or-treating that night at Lake Linden. At the end of November, police speak again with Bill at Calumet High School. He denied having any knowledge of where Carl is and maintained that he had not seen him since Halloween. In the first week of December, Bill's father signs a release, and this release allows both Bill and his brother Jerry to be polygraphed. The tests are administered and Bill passes. Unfortunately, there is a tragic closing to Bill's story. According to reports from the Michigan State Police, in the summer of 1982, Bill is caught by his parents with stolen property. His father tells him that he needs to turn himself in to law enforcement. After gathering the stolen items, Bill tells his father that he needs to go upstairs and get something. While upstairs in his room, Bill uses a gun to shoot himself in the chest. Bill Langdon died on June 28, 1982. He was 17 years old. In 1983, all physical evidence in the disappearance and death of Carl Heichel was either released to Carl's family, released to the Peterson Funeral Home, or incinerated. The release and destruction of evidence occurred shortly after the Heichel family petitioned the Houghton County Probate Court to determine a cause of death, location of death, and time of death in order to provide them some semblance of closure. If you were hoping for a DNA test on what remained of Carl's clothing, it can't be done. DNA testing on his remains to confirm that the bits of bone, nail, and hair recovered were from Carl? That would require an exhumation. Which leads us to the question, what happened to Carl Heichel? This is something that Dylan Geschel has asked himself dozens, if not hundreds of times, since he first learned of Carl's case a few years ago. 
Dylan runs the website Halloween1981.com, which is dedicated to Carl's case. After you listen to this episode, I hope you will take a few minutes to explore the website and the information contained there, as we are only scratching the surface with our coverage. Before we hear from Dylan, let's take a quick break. Can you introduce yourself for the listeners and also tell us how you learned about the case? My name is Dylan Geschel. I am a librarian uh, living locally in Houghton, Michigan. And I first heard about Carl's story in 2012, I think it was. I was working at the local public library here in Houghton at the time. And one of my peers, one of my coworkers, had told me this story they heard from a patron that really sort of piqued my interest. And so what had happened is we had a, a patron visit the library that was looking for information about property that they recently bought in the Centennial Heights area of Calumet, Michigan, uh, because they had some odd experiences on their land. And so they were wondering if there was, if there was any sort of anything nefarious that had happened on their property in the past. So this patron had basically what amounted to a ghost story. They were hunting on their property and they could hear what sounded like a child crying in the forest. Uh, And so they came to the library to see if there was any sort of historical information they could learn about their property and, and what may have happened there. And to make a long story short, the public library staff sent them to the local university archives uh, where apparently this patron did learn that there was a young boy named Carl Heichel who had went missing and, and had later been found, his remains had been found near uh, this man's property. So this is kind of where it all started for me is, is hearing that story retold to me by another librarian. And I visited the archives myself to see what what might be true about that story. And, and sure enough, I learned uh, Carl's story for the first time. Wow. You've been the keeper of Carl's story. Well, Carl's Carl's story uh you know is is in a lot of ways I think uh was almost lost to time. Uh, you know, I was I was I grew up in Lake Linden, Michigan, which is very close to the Calumet area, and I had never heard of this story before. I was surprised that I'd never heard of it. Um, and a lot of people that I talk to today still don't remember this happening. So when I found that information and, and learned that it was still a mystery, I knew I wanted to somehow make the information public to see if there could be some, some closure here for the, for the family and, the, and other people involved. And Carl's family is has been involved in your creation of the website and tracking Carl's story. Yeah, that's right. Um, before I launched the website Halloween 1981, I wasn't quite sure what I would do with the information I was compiling. But about a year ago, I, I met Carl's sister, Patty Heichel, for the first time. Um, I, I had coffee with her and then talked with her about what I was learning about the case. And she shared what she remembered from the time and, and uh, told me a lot of what I know today about, about Carl and, and who he was as a young kid. And um, since that time, I've just stayed in touch with them. So when it came time to actually launch the website, I made sure to work closely with Patty so that she could sort of 
review the information I was ready to make public and talk with her family about whether or not um, it seemed appropriate to them. And so with their blessing, I, I moved forward with launching the website. That's great. And the website is, in my opinion, it's amazing. There is so much information on there. It is so comprehensive. You've really left no stone unturned in this case, which is what it needed. Yeah, that's what I've tried to do. I really wanted to create a website that sort of operated as like a public archive that was um, easily navigable, something that people could dive into to learn about the case. I think what, what can be most difficult, though, is that really there's just not a lot of information from the historical record about it. And knowing now that, you know, 40 years has passed since Carl uh, disappeared and, and since his partial remains were found, it's hard knowing, uh, you know, really what we have available is what's posted on the website. And um, I know for me, there's just some hope that maybe someone who remembers something will come forward. So one of the issues with this case, and one of the reasons it is so important that you've put all of this information out there online, is that a lot of the physical evidence is either lost or it's not accessible. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. There wasn't a whole lot of physical evidence um, in this case to begin with. Um, what investigators did have, uh, they discovered about 11 months after Carl uh, disappeared. So in a, in a very densely forested area, about a half mile northeast of Carl's home, uh, investigators found some scraps of, of his clothing, most of his clothing, and a couple partial bones, things like fingernail clippings and um, uh, tufts of, of human hair as well. Other than that, they didn't, they didn't find most of, of Carl's remains. So they held on to that material. Um, but unfortunately, eventually most of it, most of the evidence was destroyed. So what happened is um, not too long after Carl went missing, really just a couple of years, Carl's family petitioned the local probate court to issue a death certificate so that they could have some semblance of closure. And um, you can sort of read between the lines when you, when you see how this played out in the police reports. Shortly after that death certificate was issued, police incinerated most of the remaining evidence. They don't state why in the, in the record, but I think it was probably because they were inferring some sort of closure about the case, even though it was still and is still today in an open investigation. I've seen that happen in other cases from the early 80s where they're like, well, we've got a death certificate. It looks like we're not going to solve this one, so we'll just dispose of the evidence. And now knowing what we do about the technology available, which they couldn't have dreamed of 40 years ago, it's very frustrating. Yeah, and when I think about the evidence that uh, was discovered at the time, I think probably most interesting to me is that most of his clothing was found. I think everything except his shoes were found. Um, and to think about what sort of testing, um, you know, years after the fact could have been done on that clothing there could have been some meaningful insight there, depending on what actually happened to Carl. Absolutely. So there was one suspect that we know of in his case. Can you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, this is a really interesting aspect of the case that I don't think was really fully explored at the time. The police 
if you look through their um, reports on the Heichel case, they really only ever identify one suspect by name. There was an individual, uh, his name is Alan Polawara, and he was someone that worked uh, for another member of the Heichel family as a mechanic. He knew the Heichel family, he knew Carl as well. And in in August of 1984, Paula first sort of came on the radar of local police when a local therapist had to make a mandated report to police about abuse that someone had admitted to them in a session. And what had happened is Paula had admitted to the therapist that he had been sexually abusing his own young children for several years. And when police learned about this and also sort of put together that, that he knew the Heichel family, they started looking into him as a possible suspect. Unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of investigatory work done there. They brought Polawara in for just one single interview in which he passed a polygraph test, and then they never speak with him again after. Oh, that's so frustrating. It's really frustrating especially because at least when you look at the historical reports, the police reports, Polawar is really the only person described that has motive for doing something like that. We know that he had this terrible proclivity, you know, unfortunately for young children and police also describe, um, uh, describe what Paul Aurora was up to the night that Carl um, disappeared. And they can actually place them on the same street in Calumet within about 30 minutes of each other. We touched on that a little bit in the earlier part of the episode, that they were basically just a couple doors down from each other that evening. That's right. One of the witness testimonies that police believe to be probably the most um, accurate one came from um, a man who was working that day with Palawara. And he said after he and Palawara went their separate ways uh, on Fifth Street in Calumet, just a few minutes later, this man saw Carl at a uh, liquor store um, nearby. And to be clear for our listeners that aren't familiar, in Michigan, your liquor store is like a corner store. They've got candy and soda and all sorts of things. So Carl being there isn't as unusual as maybe it sounds. That's right. Yeah, this store in particular was a place that Carl and his friends visited often for things like candy. Okay. How can listeners help in the investigation? How can listeners... You know, what can listeners do for Carl's case? Helping to spread word about Carl's story is probably the most helpful thing someone could do because you never know when someone uh, might hear about the case that hasn't thought about it in a long time, but remembers something meaningful about it that might help uh, investigators um, actually find some closure for the Heichel family. The Michigan State Police Post in Calumet has a detective sergeant that's lead on this case. His name is Jeremy Cleary. And if folks do have information, they should reach out to Detective Sergeant Cleary to share what they know. I hope you will take time to visit Dylan's website on the Heichel case. You can find a link to the website in the show notes. And while Carl's case is cold, 
It is not forgotten. His mother and sisters are still hoping for long-awaited answers. If you have information about the disappearance and death of Carl Heichel, contact Detective Sergeant Cleary of the Michigan State Police, Calumet Post, at 906-337-5145. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Thank you.